Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 145, The Ensigns of Command. Pursuant to paragraph 152, subsection 3, I welcome you to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I hereby stipulate that I'm Ken Ray. And in accordance with said statement, I'm John Champion. Each week, as laid out in the aforementioned framework, we analyze an episode of Star Trek, bound as we are contractually to pull out the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode, and assess whether they stand the test of time. As all parties have agreed, today's show, Ensigns of Command, deals with... um, and the rest of this is just legally, so I'm fairly certain you'll find the terms agreeable. So uh, do me a favor if you'll just um, if you'll sign here and uh, here and uh, here, and then if you could uh, uh, just initial here and uh, again here, and then if you'll uh, sign here and here and here and there, I got your soul. Ah, I'm sorry. I mean, we can begin. Oh, okay. What, what did I say? Did, did you? Yeah. Everybody who listened to that, they're now they're now contractually obligated to mission log, right? I, I believe they actually are. And I think they're oh, actually good. also contractually obligated to share with us their feelings, their thoughts on the messages, morals, and meanings, the whole thing. Basically, any comments they have about our show. And sorry, John, that does, of course, mean your work is about to get a whole lot busier. Well, as long as they keep it short, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> well, if everybody does it, though, I still think... Uh, you might be putting in for a little OT, which sadly yeah. uh, was not stipulated in your agreement. Um, but for people who do want to get in touch with us, Mission Log Pod is the uh, place to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd rather leave us a voicemail, you can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641, because you always repeat the number. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We are, however, not contractually obligated to do so. <laughs> that would be a very long show, Ken. <laughs> very, very long. It would indeed. Show. We would have actually done like four episodes and then it would just been turned over. Yeah, I think that probably wouldn't have been that. That, by the way, is the dream show, in case you're wondering. Not for this show, because this is you and me, and we're doing our thing. But, you know, the dream show is either you you, you never have to, like, create content again <laughs> after you open up the phone lines for the first time. Or I actually knew a guy who was like, honestly, my ideal show is, I would say, welcome in to Sports of Call was the name of the show. Uh-huh. I would then say, we'll be right back. And then for two hours and 58 minutes, it would just be commercials. <laughs> well, that, that would be good. It would be lucrative. It, well, it'd be, um, it'd be good for him, although I think probably after the first hour, 37 minutes, people would be like, I don't think Captain Jack is coming back on today. <laughs> right. I really don't. Hey, you but know, enough about my cryptic past in radio. I'm assuming you've got some trivia stuff to do, don't you? I do. All I right. do have trivia today, Ken, um, oddly enough. Um, today's show, The Ensigns of Command, was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass. And uh, here she is in sort of more familiar territory with a data story, pushing the envelope of what data can do and how he learns. She, of course, brought us Measure of a Man. And this is directed by Cliff Bull. Now, um, to clear up a little bit of confusion here, the word ensign is meant as a flag or a marker, not a rank. You know, sometimes we refer to like ensign crusher. Well, no, this is not ensign like the rank. This is to say that it is a symbol of, uh, of command or a symbol of leadership. John Quincy Adams wrote a poem called The Wants of Man, first published in 1841. In it, he goes through a list of, well, what he wants, power and praise, the perfect family, etc. In the end, though, he admits that life is short, and when he's gone, what he really wants is the mercy of God. Now, Adams said that if he could choose, he would have wanted to be known as a great writer and poet. 
He died in 1848, and while his poetry was mostly forgotten, his legacy as the sixth president of the U.S., serving from 1825 to 1829, lives on. One of my favorite things to do at this point in the show, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. is yeah. try to figure out why you said that. Yeah. Because it doesn't yeah. tie in. No, no, it doesn't. But here's the thing. So, <laughs> it, yes. So... Important to understand, first of all, the, the title of the episode. Why, yes. why does the What does the title of the episode mean? Okay. Right? And the other part is I, I would encourage people to actually go check out the poem. It, it, it's very kind of simple and straightforward. I, and it, it, it goes through sort of the list. I don't know if you've read it, Ken, in the few seconds now that you've actually heard about it. No. <laughs> no? Okay. Wait, wait. Just, just, I, I'm sorry. The, the mystery I'm trying to solve yeah. Is the term ensigns of command in the poem? It is. Okay. It is, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you didn't <laughs> there you, go. you didn't actually say that part. Well, that, like, that, that, is, that is precisely where that phrase comes this from. This has to be going someplace. I kept thinking to myself, and said, well, I'm going to read ahead and say, and no, we no, don't, no, we don't come back to that. So thank you. Thank you very much. There I appreciate that. Now, and go. now, if you'll excuse me, I'll let you finish trivia, and I'm going to go read. Uh, I'm going to go read uh, the Once of Man. The Once of Man. Yeah. All right. This was the first episode filmed for season three. You'll notice a very short Wesley Crusher scene in the transporter room. We touched on this last week with Evolution, how uh, that was the one that aired first, and again in our interview with Will Wheaton. So you can go back and listen to that. Hear how oh. all of that played out. Yeah. Yeah. Did I tell you bring up a, a, a kind of a sad, scary? uncomfortable memory that's like a totally heartbreaking story for people who for whatever reason if you haven't heard the will wheaton episode just i mean for that alone it's kind of like yeah 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 all right and now because this was the first episode film season three marvin rush who we talked about last week had not fully settled into the job of director of photography some of that work was done by thomas f denove and uh, he was primarily in charge of second unit work um throughout the last season and uh, and into season three um we did not mention the new credits for season three the new opening credits for season three last week um there are new opening credits. Okay, got that done. Um, and now Data and his quartet are playing Mozart's Eine Kleine Nacht music in uh, the opening scene and uh, bookended in the final scene uh, that we hear the recording of. And that is from eighteen, uh, sorry, 1787, um, Unknown Origin. I thought this was pretty interesting. Mozart wrote it around the time he was writing Don Giovanni. And uh, his widow sold it around 1799, but it wasn't published until 1827. So Mozart just working away, writing away, wrote this great, very recognizable, very much beloved piece of music. But um, it was not published and that we know of. uh, We don't know who commissioned it or where or when it was played until well after his death. Um, In this episode, Data flies to the planet Tau Cigna 5 on the shuttlecraft Onizuka. And that was named after astronaut Ellison Shoji Onizuka, who died in the space shuttle Challenger mission that was uh, destroyed shortly after liftoff in January 1986. Onizuka was from Hawaii and joined the Air Force in 1970 and NASA in 1978. And he completed one shuttle mission on the Discovery and was assigned as a mission specialist on the Challenger. He was the first Asian-American in space and the first person of Japanese descent in space. All right, let's very quickly talk about guest stars. Eileen Seeley played Ardrian prior to TNG. She appeared in the TV version of Down and Out in Beverly Hills, and her first ever credit was on Family Ties. That's for you, Ken. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Mark L. Taylor is a very recognizable character actor appearing here as Heratath. Uh, he's done a lot of voice work, including Jimmy Olsen and Superman, and has appeared recurring in shows like Melrose Place and Boston Legal with our very own William Shatner. Um, Richard Allen is the actor playing Kentor. And uh, it, it's funny, for just a, a split second of voice, I thought it was Tim Russ, an actor who will meet much, much later from now. And he has this kind of like stoic, almost Vulcan-like delivery. But no, different guy. Although Richard Allen will make uh, an appearance later in an upcoming Next Gen episode. And um, finally, there's one very prominent guest role here that has a weird story behind it. Goshevin was played by the actor Granger Hines. 
Now, did you see that name in the credits? Um, you didn't because it's not. His voice was entirely dubbed for the episode, and he did not get credit. Now, don't feel too bad for Hines. He has been working steadily in TV for a very long time. Um, more recently, he's had recurring roles on Hell on Wheels and The Nick. And uh, he was married at one time to Michelle Phillips. Remember her from The Mamas and the Papas and the Next Gen episode, We'll Always Have Paris. They were married in the 80s and they had two children together. It is all of the excitement of contract law, meets the thrill of finding people you did not know were lost. Let us let John tell us more. Prologue. Data is preparing to play a concert in Tin Forward with Dr. Crusher and Captain Picard in attendance. He's not exactly selling them on the idea. He recommends that they come in later when a different, better violinist will play his part. Now, I know we're not 30 seconds into it, but it's time for a lesson. Picard and Dr. Crusher tell Data to never advertise his shortcomings. Plus, they think he'll be fine. Oh, they would think he's fine, but a few seconds into the show, Riker calls for Picard that there is an urgent message from the Sheliak corporate. Sheliak message is short and to the point. There are human colonists on Tau Sigma 5, a planet they own and intend to colonize themselves. Get the humans out of there. Seems weird to the Enterprise. Shouldn't be any humans there. And even if there were, the place is lousy with dangerous radiation. Better go have a look anyway. Act 1. Arriving at Tau Sigma 5, nothing on the Enterprise works. The radiation has played havoc with ship's weapons, instruments, and the transporters. Dr. Crusher says there could be people there if they were able to adapt and got lucky. Picard asks Riker to speculate, and Riker says not to expect much more than a dozen people in a wrecked ship. So, you know that what Riker says is going to be totally wrong, right? Data is sent to the planet in a shuttlecraft, the only way to get there at this point. A couple of curious people find him. They are Kentor and Heritath, and they've never seen anyone who's not part of the colony. The colony? Oh, yeah. Uh, the descendants of the Artemis, a ship that launched 92 years ago and went way off course. Some survived, and their population now exceeds 15,000. The survivors were busy. They should have given some tips to the Mariposans. Data gets introduced to Goshevin, the leader of the colonists. Here's a recap of that conversation. Guess what, Goshevin? The Sheliak are coming here, and they want you gone, or else they will kill you. To which Goshevin replies, yeah, not interested, try someone else. There's a little more nuance to it than that, but that is the gist. Data tries to reason with him and doesn't get why Goshevin is impervious to reason. Goshevin just says that this colony, this planet, is a symbol of his work and his people's work. They aren't going anywhere. One colonist, Ardrian, is intrigued by Data. She's never seen an android before, and she respects that he can think and act dispassionately with total logic. Data asks if he can talk to her about Goshevin and their current situation. Upon the Enterprise, Picard has a simple order for O'Brien and LaForge. Make the transporter work. He's also got news for Deanna. While it took over 300 Federation lawyers to negotiate the original treaty, they are on their own to find a way out. Act 2. Remember all those times Picard was so full of swagger and smugness when he would show he has the upper hand while talking to an alien race just by cutting them off in mid-sentence? Yeah. Well, news of that must have traveled. When the Sheliak finally show up, they cut Picard off dead stop. There will be no negotiation. They want the colonists gone. That is the condition of the treaty, after all. Back on the planet, Ardrian tells Data that she knows he's right because his judgment isn't clouded by emotion. She really digs computers for that very reason. Picard calls down to remind Data of the severity of what's going on. With the Sheliak corporate unwilling to negotiate, Picard has called upon Starfleet to send transport ships, but it might take some time for them to arrive. Data is to get everyone prepared so they can move out quickly. Easier said than done. The Enterprise transporters are still useless, and Goshevin is still a huge stick in the mud. He has an interesting perspective, though. His grandfather died on a rock slide while working at the colony. He's buried nearby. 
The land and everything around them is symbolic to the colonists of the sacrifices and progress they've made. He's not budging. Data needs a new plan. At least Ardrian is on his side. The news from Starfleet isn't so good. It'll take three weeks to get enough transport vessels to Tau Cigna, but the Sheliak corporate are on their way with plans to take back their planet in two days. It may look like a hostile act, but Picard is ready to intercept the Sheliak. Act 3. Data is not making much headway, but he can't count on help from anyone on the Enterprise. Most of the people on Tau Cigna 5 would rather ignore the problem, stay and fight, negotiate, and we know that won't happen, and only a small minority can even entertain the idea of evacuating. Goshevin has called a town meeting. Ardrian finds Data kind of perplexed that he hasn't been able to get through, so she does what anyone would do. She kisses him. That went over, well, it didn't go over as well as Data's run-in with Tasha Yar. He doesn't get it. She's kind of taken with him, and she wants him to succeed. She suggests reverse psychology, so cue the town meeting. Data plays that reverse psychology card, telling all the people of the colony that their deaths will be remembered as heroic since they perished for land and honor. Goshevin pulls out his secret weapon, the slow clap. You do not mess with the slow clap. He reasserts his position as elected leader. He thinks Data has overstated the threat, and he implores his people to stand with him. And they do. This round goes to Goshevin. Act 4. Goshevin might have been pretty convincing, but there are a few colonists who are at least willing to hear out the alternatives. Ardrian invites Kentur and Heratath, along with whomever else, will meet at her place to do some planning. Meanwhile, Deanna is helping Picard to confront the Sheliak. She starts with an object lesson and getting on the same page with them. She's holding a teacup and uses an alien word. The word could mean anything. Glass, cup, clear, brown, hot. Picard's just thinking it's a delicious cup of Earl Grey. Her advice is that he has to be ultra-precise with the Sheliak. The treaty is more than 500,000 words, all meant to avoid confusion. When the Sheliak arrive, Picard opens up communication. So far, so good. He quotes the treaty back to the Sheliak representative that he is at least owed a conversation to settle the dispute. On Tau Cigna, those who oppose Goshevin have met to strategize. The Federation will help with resettlement, but the immediate problem is the people's loyalty to Goshevin. Kentor steps up. People respect him. But, oh, look, if it isn't Mr. Slowclap himself come to crash the party. He does worse than just show up and eat a lot of snacks and bore everyone with his own lame stories. He pulls out a weapon that zaps Data into unconsciousness. The party is over. Somewhere out there, Picard and Deanna Troy beam aboard the Sheliak vessel to start a negotiation with a creature that is a collection of shiny, amorphous parts held together with a booming baritone. Picard is getting nowhere. He asks for time to move the colonists, and the Sheliak director only sees them as an infestation to be eradicated. No extension, no flexibility, and no soup for you. Trumping their own hanging up on the phone trick... Shaliak beam Picard and Deanna right back to the bridge of the Enterprise. Act 5. Thankfully for us all, Data has a self-correcting mechanism inside that wakes him up again. He's back, and he's got a new plan. Words are great and everything, but now he's going to try to be a little more persuasive with a phaser. He even uses some of his own circuitry to make the phaser work, since otherwise the radiation would have prevented that too. He dispatches Ardrian to warn Goshevin that he will attempt to destroy the aqueduct. Before you can say, don't phase me, bro, Data shows up at the aqueduct and takes out four of Goshevin's armed guards. Stunned, of course. Before Goshevin can do anything, Data points his weapon, now on a higher charge, to the pumping station of the aqueduct. The result of the blast is a huge current that runs the length of the entire aqueduct far into the mountains. Data's point is now pretty clear. The Sheliak are far more powerful than him, and they will have no compunction about blasting them into atoms from the comfort of their weirdly lit spaceships. Seems like it worked. Goshevin backs down, and the colonists are ready to get the hell out of there, either from fear of the Sheliak or the insane android who blows things up. On the Enterprise, 
Picard's most recent encounter with the Sheliak still got him nowhere, so he's busy looking at all 500,000 words of the original treaty. There is a breakthrough. A little section indicates that the Federation can request third-party arbitration. When Picard breaks the news, the Sheliak reluctantly agrees, and then Picard drops the bomb. The arbitrators he wants are an alien race who are in a hibernation cycle for the next six months. They can go with them, or the Sheliak could be cool about this and give Picard the three weeks he needs to get everyone off their nasty little radiation-infested planet. The Sheliak director does not take this well, but his objections are cut off by Picard. That's right, who's back in the business of hanging up on business calls? Picard, that's who. Now, if the Sheliak had tails, and who knows, maybe they do, this one has his between his legs when he calls back to Picard. He can have three weeks to remove the colonists. Data is ready to leave Tau Sigma 5. He's preparing a shuttle when Ardrian approaches. The colonists are preparing to leave, but she's more interested in Data. She hopes he will remember her, fondly even, that maybe there are some feelings he has for her. Data reminds her that he has no feelings, but he gives her a kiss. He sees that she's in need of one, and that's his mechanical response. Then it's time for him to head home. Back on board and in Picard's ready room, Data is surprised to see that Picard is listening to a recording of the concert Data performed the other night. There's something about it. It has feeling. Although Data explains he merely copied the best parts of other performers, that's where Picard sees his creativity lie. The end. A couple of things. I don't know which one to hit first. Okay. Just, just um, hit them. All right. So we're in Act 5 before Picard says, let's take a look at this contract. Right? Mm -hmm. It's either Mm -hmm. Act 4 or Act 5. He even says, they've been beating us over the head with this contract for three days. Why don't we take a look at it and see if there's something we can find? (laughs) Hey, I got an idea. It's 500,000 words. You had three days. Why didn't you take a look at it before? It's a little bit surprising. Um, The other thing, and you actually reference this all the way through, but not in the way that I figured you would. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting turn of phrase from Riker. So, you know, the, uh, Picard and, and Troy are on the Sheliak ship, and the Sheliak's done with them, and so he beams them back over, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, and uh, Riker says, um, I take it the Sheliak just hung up on us again. Mm-hmm. Hung up on. Mm-hmm. That, is a, that is obviously a reference to a phone call. They just, they just disconnected the phone call because we used to hang – you know, the receiver, uh, proves to me that we will be taping things well into the 24th century, long <laughs> right. after we have tape. Tape will be right. so far gone at that point. Taping and filming right. things, uh, neither of which most of us do today. And yet yeah. those of us still involved in audio production say, yeah, I got to go tape a thing, and then I got to yeah. film a deal. And then, yeah, we don't we don't actually do any of those. And apparently we're just going to stick with those terms from now, at least for the next 300 years. I'm glad that you brought that up because, yeah, I, I noticed it when Riker said it. And mm-hmm. not that long ago, I'd seen one of these, you know, terrible Internet list articles about phrases that, that kind of don't have any bearing on the technology that we have now. And, and hang up the phone was mm-hmm. one of them because sure. you don't hang up your phone anymore. Not not usually. There are still actual phones with hands sets that you hang up but um yeah but that's not the thing that you do not, not many of um, them no in fact uh the the place that we just moved into has a mm-hmm. uh, has one of those jacks on the wall like where you used to be able to hang you know an old mm-hmm. phone mm-hmm. right I, I honestly wanted to put a picture frame around it <laughs> it's useless <laughs> right, yeah. but it's there and i thought that would actually be neat. oh it's like a historical document it's like an old it's a piece of old history there that we're now treat like art because I certainly have no use for hanging a phone there. Because hang up a phone, please. I push a yeah. button, I'm done with you. I'm just saying. Right, right. And the other thing about um, the treaty, like I'm surprised that in the time it took them to get to Tau Sigma Five, mm-hmm. one of the things that Picard would have done is to say to Data, like Data, you're the fast android who is awesome at things. <laughs> Go read those five hundred thousand words and uh, tell me what it says. Yeah. And tell me how we can get out of this. And then Data could have said, oh, yeah, okay, if you have a problem, arbitrate, I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you that, that actually would have made a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of sense. What made very mm-hmm. little sense was having uh, Riker and Worf 
standing there reading the treaty, honestly. Oh, no. Oh, and, and Worf is so bored. He's like, oh, uh, can't we just fight? Let's just kill <laughs> these guys and be done with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oddly yeah. enough, one of the few times, though, that you didn't hear Picard go, no. right very true yeah hey if you were o'brien or laforge take a pick and uh and the captain had called you to the briefing room only to say make the transporter work and then you just turn around and go "Uh, okay would you feel like he had wasted your time no i think i would feel like he had wasted my time when i came onto the bridge and said so look this is gonna take a while and he's gonna be like yeah never mind yeah, <laughs> I think that's when. I mean, when when yeah. he starts off by saying, "Look, this this has to happen." All right, mm-hmm. and I know it's going to seem impossible, but it has to happen. I mean, that's the kind of thing you expect. What is it that Jordy said to to Crusher? Wes said he demands the impossible, and 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 Jordy says uh, that is the short definition of captain. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Or he wants the impossible. That's the short definition of captain. So no, I don't think he was wasting his time up until the point where you get there and you're like, okay, so we figured it out, and it's going to take a while, and it was a lot of math. And I'm tired. <laughs> and Picard's like, oh, no, we thought of something else. I'm sorry. I should have called you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing that I thought about is that uh, we mentioned that it took 327 lawyers to bang out this treaty. And I thought, what future hell is this where you've got 327 lawyers in the Federation to work on one treaty. Uh, the place is just lousy with lawyers. No, not necessarily. They may have had to call them all back. <laughs> that may have yeah. actually been all of the lawyers they had. Maybe the Shelyak wanted like 500. Uh, yeah, right, right. I- including, uh, what was his name? Uh, is it Mr. Cogsley, the, the man with all the books? Yeah, well, it's... From Court Martial. Is it Cogsley? It might be. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, I might have gotten that wrong. That's like another. I know that, that's like eighty years ago, though, dude. Yeah. Well, I know that the man loves books, and maybe yep. his head is frozen somewhere, and they can use his lawyering. <laughs> oh, okay. Skills. I was going to say he was already sixty something then. It mm-hmm. seemed, yeah. and so if you add another eighty years to that, I don't know that he'd be the lawyer you'd want. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You never know. He's a smart guy. Um, I wonder if the Sheliak related to the Excalbians. I, I thought I. I Sensed a little Excalbian style in them, you they, know. They, which, which ones are they? Oh, oh, uh, from the episode with Lincoln. Oh, okay. Yeah, the huh. rock monster. It, that's not interesting. With a rock lobster. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. I was actually thinking. Um, it, it's you. You described them. I all I could see honestly was a recliner come to life. It was like if like it was like if a cherry <laughs> had gone bad. Oh wow! Yeah. 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 Um, we got to see how the transporters don't work, and now we have a pretty good idea visually of what became of Commander Sonak. Uh, sorry, never forget. Never forget Commander Sonak. And um, I think I mentioned it before on this show that there was a TV movie that, you know, when I was like eight, I thought it was just the coolest thing in the world called Goliath the Waits. And, um, and it had so many parallels to this, um, you know, the unlikely survivors in an impossible environment, the charismatic leader. And then when the rescuers show up, they're like, eh, we don't need to be rescued, you know, e- even though there's imminent danger and they will all die. Um, so I feel like it's a, it's a it's a trope that gets used. And there are colonists everywhere in the 24th century. So why not? do this again you know right and, up in, right up until the part about the imminent danger you actually described this side of paradise mm, oh yeah yeah of course because that, yeah, that yeah, planet was being yeah. pounded by radiation nobody thought there were mm-hmm. going to be any alive people there they get there not only they're alive but they're happy they're thriving mm-hmm. <sighs> there's no imminent danger unless you count uh something that rhymes with schmirk Something that rhymes with <laughs> jerk something that rhymes with work which is apparently what they weren't doing enough of anyway I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, me um, Data has neural subprocessors in his right arm. Good we place for that. them. That's where I keep mine. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. good. <laughs> Not you. It's hey, smart. You know, you, you talk about like you know his pieces and parts that make him a thing. It was the mm-hmm. return of our old friend Carbon Chauvinism, maybe in this episode. Oh. Uh, oh. What's his name? Or, or what's her name? Ardri, Ardriana? Ardrian. Ardrian. Ar- Ardrian. Yeah. Ardrian uh, says, yeah, maybe the reason Goshman doesn't want to talk to you is because you're you're a robot. And he you know, doesn't want some machine bossing him around. Now, I think, actually, Goshman was pretty committed to not talking to anybody. But, oh, yeah. But for a second there, she was like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's because, you know, he's carbon-based and you're very much not. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, um, yeah, Goshman doesn't want to hear it from anybody, especially not some... 
some toaster that can talk. Um, but talking calculator, he actually said a talking calculator. He does, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but data, you know, data is um, there's like a little bit of a compassion circuit. He knows what to say after he's destroyed the aqueduct. He says, "Hey, things can be replaced. Lives cannot." They have a moment, you know. Yeah. I think Goshevin took it pretty well for a guy who is just committed to die and take 15,000 people with him. Um, you know? Yes. <laughs> so not bad at all. Um, I, the best moment of all, though, I thought, um, letting that Sheliak hail linger for a long time while Picard walks around the bridge and he, he uses his finger to trace the top of the Enterprise commemoration plaque to check for dust. I'm so glad that even though TV is a very efficient medium, that they took the time to do that because it was nicely edited. It was nicely cut. I envy the Shellyak. The planet they are moving to already has an amazing water slide. And there's a lot going on in this episode, but there's one just quick thing that jumped out at me is that right there in the prologue, we we get a leadership lesson out of the way, <laughs> you know, just get it done fast and set ourselves up for what comes for data, the test for data in the rest of the episode. And I usually don't like things that are that on the nose, yeah. uh, but it was worthwhile here and it was a nice kind of different setting to play that out i'm actually so, kind of wondering if this yeah. is going to be a thing that happens because like you know last week i talked about the dumb show that was um the two stars right in evolution there was a small thing mm. feeding off the big thing uh yeah to potentially disastrous results and the story that they yeah. were telling that was the nanites eating the enterprise computer um but we get the yeah. point of the episode or at least one of the points of the episode in the prologue Right mm -hmm. uh, last week with the whole the smaller thing feeding up the bigger thing and then we all might die. We get the same thing here. And just I mean basically the Picard is just starting off with dude just lead okay don't talk about why you're not going to be good at what you're going to do. By the way that's a bad command idea just across the board. If you're a commander <laughs> don't start with oh guys so I've got this idea but it's probably going to suck. We may want to wait until the <laughs> night crew comes on because they have a better commander who like has soul. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, we're going to get more into Goshevin. I mean, you get kind of the opposite thing from Goshevin. Gosh, uh, excuse me. Mm -hmm. He leads and people follow, but he's going to lead them to death. And I don't mean like, you know, you're going to talk me to death or that guy's going to sing me to death. I mean, he will lead them to their deaths. I mean, yeah. there's, there's an interesting sort of – it's weird because on the one hand we're hearing, look, no, just just go, all right? Just, just say and do and people will follow. And here's an example of that. Oh, well, that's maybe not the best example data, but, but, but <laughs> you, you, see, you see it works uh, sometimes to, uh, to negative results. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on there with Goshevin. I mean, just as, a, as an examination of his leadership and his psychology, um, it, first of all, there's this, this streak of censorship. Mm -hmm. And he uses that a couple of times to try to shut down data. I mean, not, well, literally and, you know. Figuratively, uh, yeah. Figuratively, yeah. yeah. Um, and then his own people from even discussing their situation, you know. Um, so he's got that in him, first of all. And uh, then I thought it was interesting, that scene with Goshevin and Kentor, when Kentor says that he'll be the one to stand up to Goshevin, but... That can only really work because Goshevin is respected. He can get other people to hopefully sway to his side because he knows he'll need others. I kind of thought about first follower theory, um, which I, I think probably took on a new life on the Internet after there was a big TED talk about it. The idea that one person doing something um, – probably will not change opinion or change action. Mm -hmm. But when you have one person doing something, the very next person to follow that person or emulate the first person, it's the second person who will get others to follow. It's like, um, the, it's like the video of all those people dancing on the hill. That's exactly, you know the yeah. One? Absolutely. You know the one I'm talking about? For yeah, people who haven't yeah. seen it, it's kind of crazy. They're at some... 
like outdoor music festival, it would seem. And it's just a hill mm-hmm. and, and they're like a bunch of people just sort of you know, relaxing, listening to music. And there's this one guy just dancing his fool head off. And I'm not saying he's mm-hmm. a fool, but I'm just trying to illustrate it as best I can. Just dancing his fool head off. And then somebody else goes over to dance with him or maybe a couple of people do. And it's unclear if they're making fun or if they just want to share in his joy or what. But inside of a minute, you've got what looks to be about 100 people, maybe more, dancing yeah. there. And and it was originally just this one guy doing his thing. But you're right. It was those, that, that first or second person that came along afterwards and started dancing with him that everybody was like, ah, yes, <laughs> let's go yeah, do that for a yeah. little while and be watched forever. Right. Well, we're going to talk about the psychology of that quite a bit, I think, here. I mean, uh, well, let, let's talk about data a little bit to begin with. Okay. Um, because in, in the past and very early on in Mission Log, we talked about ethos, pathos, logos, kind of the, the three ideas of the, the, the morality, the, the, you know, passion and emotion and the logic being ways that sort of psychologically we argue with ourselves, but also present argument. And um, Data has logos and spades. <laughs> he, he is like, he's got logic down, no mm-hmm. problem at all. But he has to learn here to argue from a point of pathos, from emotion. Um, and and I, it's this argument that is the, the central part of the story here. Um, there is a really interesting article that I was reminded of. came out, I believe, in 2014. Um, Why do people persist in believing things that just aren't true? You can search for that uh, from thenewyorker.com. And it was an interesting study. It it was recapping um, scientists who had done a survey of 2,000 parents who received different kinds of vaccination literature. Some of it very scientific and dispassionate. Some about here, here are reasons to have children vaccinated. And then another one was also very scientific and dispassionate, said, here are reasons that vaccinations should not be feared because here's what they do and this is a good thing. And then some of them were scare tactics. It was like, here here are the diseases that you face if your child is not vaccinated. And then some of them were very emotional pleas, like, you know, some a, a heartfelt personal story saying, here's what happened to my child. And what do you think happened, Ken? Nothing changed. There were no trends, no useful results. Nothing changed in perception on uh, on the the parents' attitudes toward vaccination, even though they had tried this very careful controlled study. And there was even some backfire effect where just by presenting the information, they got a backfire from these parents who, who sort of rejected it outright. And what these scientists were were looking into about the, the, the idea of, uh, of the study here is that all the factors that influence belief and some of the results that you kind of argue back and forth that one of the biggest things affecting change in belief is, well, first and foremost, how long that belief is held. So if it's a belief that is something that you've grown up with that's a lot harder to change than something that is just a a minor error that maybe you got some wrong information a week ago or a month ago. Mm -hmm. But then the other part of it is how deeply and how closely it is to personal identity and how difficult that is to to turn when new information is presented. So it's an interesting look here at belief in the face of evidence. You know, Gauchevin has power and he acts in ways to express and preserve his power. You know, the people around him have to have a certain level of cognitive dissonance to stay with him. And there's a benefit to thinking as a group, as a community, as opposed to questioning the leader. Here's the guy who has provided and he was elected. So there's a benefit to every member of that society to sort of kind of stay in lockstep at at least where it's expedient for them and not be the person who steps out of line and like you said be that first to make a big change the other big factor here is you know peer group peer group has huge indicators for beliefs and and it's one of the only really good ways to affect people's beliefs to make them change so things like logic and education alone simply don't work. 
Um, there, there has to be incentive. That's why I really like that scene where you get a handful of people together at Ardrian's place and they talk it out. So, yeah, a few people who are just maybe questioning what's going on. And it's only because you have a few people who can hopefully turn their friends, their peers around to actually turn this into a movement. And I thought about myself, you know, there are matters that I feel very strongly about, and I'm sure that you do too, (laughs) and typically of, for me anyway, a scientific nature. And, and it's why I first found out that there was such thing as people called skeptics and, and what they do and why they do what they do. And, and it made me realize that so many critical topics are clouded by tradition, personal identity, strong feelings, uh, you know, emotional and gut reactions, certainly political leanings, that it becomes more and more difficult to focus on things like factual data and scientific consensus. You know, you and I know that there are people who would rather die than shift their perspective or learn new data, particularly when that new information contradicts the sense of identity, like Goshevin's story about his family. We get the impression that Goshevin has told that story about his grandfather buried on the hill over and over and over again. That is his identity. You know, his identity is the leader who got elected there, but he's also the leader who sort of like earned it by divine right because his grandfather is up on the hill. Um, Back to that New Yorker article for just a moment and and talking about the idea of, of all of these factors playing into belief and how difficult it is to change belief, even in the face of good scientific evidence. Um, here is their, their final summary in that piece. They said, and that ultimately is the final big piece of the puzzle, the cross-party, cross-platform unification of the country's elites, those who we perceive as opinion leaders, can make it possible for messages to spread broadly. And they give a great example here. The campaign against smoking is one of the most successful public interest fact-checking operations in history. But if smoking were just for Republicans or Democrats, change wouldn't have been or would have been far more unlikely. It is only after ideology is put to the side that a message itself can change so that it becomes decoupled from notions of self-perception. So that's uh, that's me talking a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> about about the ideas that I gained from this because e- even though I felt like that wasn't the point of the story mm-hmm. that's the way the psychology played out and it was great to watch it play out for Goshevin power is more important than anything and it doesn't matter if he's right or wrong and for the Sheliak as a parallel to that the rules are more important than anything doesn't matter what's right or wrong. They're just going to stick by the rules because the rules favor them in this case. Well, the rules are right as far as they're mm-hmm. concerned. I mean, 300 lawyers on the Federation side, who knows how many the Shelyak had working on their side. Let me, yeah. I mean, I, 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 the only problem is I have to poke a fairly large hole in one thing that you said. Sure. Go I'm, ahead. I'm horrified by Goshevin's willingness to believe that, you know, what he has to say in the absence of any proof, you know, whatsoever is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And and, I, and what I don't understand is why Data didn't bring a pad. And maybe they wouldn't work mm-hmm. because of the radiation. Mm-hmm. But if he can make a phaser work, then he can probably make a TV work. And if he can make a TV work, he can show them what the Sheliak can do, right? Mm-hmm. I spent most of this episode hating Goshevin's boneheadedness. Yeah. But really, until he pulls out the phaser, the choices that Data has given Goshevin are... Believe in this monster story that I'm telling you without any proof or believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, yeah. and and so so some guy you've never met before comes out of nowhere and says, hey, there's a monster coming to get you. And you've walked <laughs> this road every day of your life and your grandfather is buried on this road because he walked this road, too. Right. You know this road. You don't know this guy. And you certainly don't know this monster. Honestly, the second or third time I'm watching it, I'm like, you know, Goshevin has a point here. Data has shown him nothing. And when Data finally shows him something, I mean, aside from the fact that Data is Data, when he finally shows him something, then Goshevin's like, yeah, all right. (laughs) My bad. Okay, let let me present this in a slightly different way, because I I, I agree with you to a point. All right. 
Okay, so here's a slightly different version of it. Mm-hmm. Goshevin and all the colonists, unlike, say, the Bringloidi, yeah. okay, they are well aware of their history. They are well aware of who they are, how they got there, what their background is, who their ancestors were. Yep. And they're aware that there's a thing called a federation. Yep. And there's a way, they are aware that the federation has spaceships and lawyers and weapons and all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, you know, I had mentioned before, um, I forgot what episode, but we were talking about, um, I, I remember the $6 million man episode where you've got, you've got the uh, World War II, the Japanese World War II soldier who's been stuck on an island and doesn't know that World War II has ended. Right. Okay. Right. Now, it would be one thing if that existed in a vacuum, but it's another thing when this World War II soldier is separated from society but understands Okay, I am a soldier who was a chain or a link in a chain of command. Mm-hmm. Uh, different story. I'm not jumping the timeline. Um, <laughs> so I am a link in a chain of command. And those commanders are people who would have given orders and could have given orders. So I, I'm not just totally fighting this war on my own. And for these colonists, these aren't people who are just totally on their own. Yes, as a, as a practical matter – they have had to build the society on their own. But they're, they are aware that there is connection yeah. to other information. All right. So, so what, I, I give, I give Goshevin, you know, a little bit of a pass, but maybe not as much. They, they got here when? 90-something years ago, right? 92 years. Okay, yeah. so Harry Mudd had actually been out and about and doing his stuff at that point, yes? There mm-hmm. are con men. There are, there are, there are, there are people... Hey, you know what? This land is no good for you. This land is actually no good for anyone. Why don't you go over to this land and, oh, look, we found something on this land after all. Well, thank you very <laughs> much anyway, Goshevin and crew. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, they don't, this, this episode is an interesting examination of leadership, but it mm-hmm. all seems to be done poorly. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why Picard didn't get on some sort of communicator with Goshevin, because communicators work. Despite yeah, everything yeah. else not working, communicators work, because, you know, uh, Data's in somebody's house, and he gets a communication from the starship, and Data's in an alley, and he gets a communication from the starship. So, maybe they would talk to somebody besides Data. Why didn't we try that? I'm also curious why Data, like I said before, didn't show Goshevin the pad and show him what the Sheliaks could do. And by the way, he could have shown them anything, because they don't know what the Sheliak look like. <laughs> so, I mean, that would have been pretty easy. Now, don't yeah. misunderstand me. I'm not saying so. Poor Goshevin, because yeah, yeah. he becomes a strong man despotic evil thing like yeah. like pretty quickly enough of this trouble talk or troubling talk i guess it is or you know talk of trouble or whatever and and Adrian says yeah, since when has talk trouble nah, good point he's moving pretty quickly to the strong arm dictator um you know which he then goes to with you know killing his opponent except of course he says he didn't kill him he just turned him off and data's a machine so i guess you could make that argument if you wanted to but i mean he just turns out to be a bad guy yeah. But there is just bad leadership everywhere in this episode. What is the deal with Starfleet and the Federation just leaving both the colonists and the Enterprise hanging? Picard's attitude makes it seem as if Starfleet is not doing everything they could to help the colony. They're very sorry, but it's going to be at least three weeks. That is not, oh, they're at least three weeks away. They're trying to get here as mm-hmm. soon as they can, but they're only three weeks away. Picard's like, I cannot believe it. They are telling me they can't even get somebody out here for three weeks. It's like when I call a repair guy as opposed to, you know... <laughs> The firemen are on their way, you know? Right. I mean, the, the impression that I got from Picard was, I mean, you're telling me the president of the Federation, assuming that there is still one of those at this point, probably not Kurtwood Smith, it's been a few years, but I mean, the president of the Federation uh, isn't going to get on the horn with the Shellyak and say, hey, fellas, you know, could we talk, please? Or, you know, maybe get, a, get an ambassador, because Lord knows, even in the 24th century, Starfleet's just full of ambassadors going around screwing stuff up. There, there, and, and I will say also... Um, when stuff hits the hill, it rolls down, mm-hmm. right? So, so Picard is called Starfleet. He's like, Starfleet, we need help. And Starfleet's like, yeah, nuts to you. And Picard's like, gah. And so he goes yeah, to Riker. Yeah. He's like, ah, they said nuts to me. And I say nuts to them, but it means more when they say it because they have what I need. And me, I'm just an impotent whatever, right? And so Data calls up to Riker and he's like, ah, I need help. And Riker's like, ah, nuts to you. And Data's like, nuts to me, really? Because it's like, and he's even worse about it. He's like, 15,000 people are defending, depending on you, and I can't help you. You know what I thought of? What's that? Philip Seymour Hoffman in, uh, in uh, The Big Lebowski. Oh. 
And Mr. Lebowski wanted me to stress to you, dude, her life is in your hands. Oh, don't do that, man. I'm sorry, dude. Her life is in your hands. <laughs> really, don't do that. Her life is in your hands, dude. I mean, that's one of what he did to Data. Data's calling up like, yeah, this really isn't working. And, and Riker's like, well, you better make it work because right. all those people are going to die. And it's going to be your fault. Let's see if you get some feelings then, Ten Man. See, it's funny. All I could think about is that uh, that has to be one big ship to carry 15,000 people. Yeah. At the end, because yeah, I, I thought it was a lot of ships. But at the end, <laughs> Deanna says, like, oh, the ship's on its way. Yeah. And I was like, man, you, you got 15,000 people to travel three weeks? Well, they're only taking 15. the 500 best. It's like a game of lifeboat. Either that or it's, uh, it's just one big holodeck ship. Maybe you oh, can actually yeah. stack people, you know, 15,000 deep if you have them convinced that they're walking around on a planet the size of the planet they just left. We've had this conversation before about why the Enterprise isn't just full of holodecks. Like your quarters should mm-hmm. just be a holodeck. I don't understand why they're even going anywhere. No, just exactly. <laughs> just, just hang out. Holodecks for the lot of them. That's what I say. Um, we've talked before. Uh, particularly in TOS, mm-hmm. about alien races being so advanced that they would just see humans as inferior, as cockroaches. Mm-hmm. But then we would also wonder how they got that far if they see everything and everyone around them as something they can just flippantly conquer and destroy. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that this doesn't make for very good progress. Well, it's I, not necessarily I, that they're so advanced, though. It could also just be that they're racist. Right. Sure. I mean, it's not racist necessarily with the, a lot of power. Yeah. <laughs> well, racist yeah. with enough power. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's not because, yeah, I know data tells them, look, I'm just one android and I could I blew up your thing and they're going to be much bigger androids or not androids, but they're going to be a much bigger enemy and they could actually blow you up from space. But he doesn't tell them as you know, we could also blow you up from space. It's not necessarily the Shellyak are that much more advanced. Um, I mean, yeah. certainly they are more advanced than the colonists, but no, they, it may not be about they may not be like the the Metreons. They may just be uh, may just be jerks. Well, you know, uh, when I see a spaceship that's primarily lit by candlelight, I think that they're pretty advanced. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, these guys they've they've got a sense of style and mood minimalism, lighting. mood lighting. Mood. Yeah. yeah, their ship is so advanced they don't even feel like they need to work on like how well it works anymore. Now they no. can go on with you know how it looks. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of other things that I thought about, you know, th- there was some maybe interesting stuff here about colonization and then the change in colonization. Like I thought about um, when Hong Kong got handed uh, back over to the Chinese uh, from the British in, in 1997, so a little bit after this was uh, after this was aired, um, although there, there were no uh, threats of violence at that time. Um, I also, uh, I, I liked that scene of uh, Deanna and Picard describing the cup of tea because, well, here we are again discussing what we did last week, getting on the same page to understand and negotiate. Mm-hmm. And it's such a common thread and we should all be better at it. We hope that we can be better at something like that. Um, but that that scene just was sort of exactly right <laughs> yeah. for that moment. You know? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really great, actually. And it's a very yeah. short scene. But um, mm-hmm. Troy's talking about how amazing it is that races are able to communicate at all. It's kind of mind-blowing, yeah. um, especially if we assume that everyone on an episode of Star Trek is actually a stand-in for you know someone on our planet in our time, whatever time yeah. we happen to be watching it. I mean, Kennedy said... Uh, that's uh, not the former VJ, but the president. Uh, Robert, uh, no, John Kennedy, excuse me, said our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we are all mortal. At the same time, as we record this, uh, there was an interesting thing. It could be funny, but it's not really uh, that happened relatively recently. Uh, some British citizens were uh, recently in trouble for getting naked on a mountain in a country in which they were traveling. Mm-hmm. And the reason they got in trouble was because to the people of that country, the mountain is sacred. This particular mountain, not just mountains in general. This particular mountain is sacred. And uh, some of the country's citizens actually believe that it was the disrespect of that sacred place shown by these travelers uh, that caused an earthquake a few days later. I don't know what the solution is in that case, though. At its core, I think one has to understand that no matter how similar, even if you speak the same language, even if you look the same, uh, perceived differences are real. Now, the problem that I have is I don't know – at that point, I don't know what you treat with more respect. I mean, do you get naked on that mountain to prove to people that, no, it's actually not sacred. Me getting naked on this mountain is not going to cause an earthquake. Or do you stand off and go, well, they believe that, so that's okay. 
because that's how you end up with, uh, you know, holy wars eventually <laughs> is mm-hmm, if you keep mm-hmm. respecting even the craziest or even the most outlandish uh, of whatever site it happens to be um, taken down to a completely different uh, line. I used to live in West Newton, uh, Massachusetts, a million years ago, and I had a younger uh, family member who lived there as well. He's like five years younger than me, six years younger than me. And he was telling me about a fight that a friend of his had gotten in because his friend was from Newton and they were in Watertown. And the thing is, he wasn't wearing a jacket. Watertown, by the way, is next to Newton. It is, it is the next town over from Newton. Like, if, if you don't pay attention to the sign or pay attention to where you are, you will accidentally cross from Newton to Watertown, if memory serves. It's been a long time since I lived there. I, you, could, you could stand somebody from Somerville and, and Watertown and Newton and Arlington next to each other. I could probably tell Somerville from Arlington, but most of them I can't really tell, right? But these kids from like Watertown and Newton would beat each other up and they could tell like by the way they cut their hair or yeah. by the way they like wore their pants or something like that. And that was enough to get you beaten up. Yeah. Um, the differences are, are real, I guess. The idea of just, I mean, it might have been an interesting thing for Kirk to have learned sometime back in the day, just because it's not the way you think it is. Uh, you know, maybe... It, 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 maybe pay a bit of attention to the differences. Whether you decide at that point to respect them or not um, might be a different thing, but you have to respect the fact that they're there. Decades later, what can we learn from the tale of the colonists and the Shelyak? Time now to do that thing that we do uh, this time of the show, and that's why I say it's that time, uh, where we decide, uh, well, where we try to figure out. I shouldn't say we decide. It's really not up to us. What the messages, morals, and meanings of a given episode are and whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. Uh, the Ensigns of Command, Mr. Champion, um, in your opinion, does this episode hold up? I have to say yes. You know, despite budget cuts, uh, it, it was interesting to see that there were about $200,000 shaved off from this episode. Hmm. And I kept thinking like, okay, well, uh, for a colony of 15,000 people, we've seen about 20. <laughs> you know? right. um, even when they have the town meeting, it's like, okay, uh, I've seen that guy and I've seen that guy and uh, we're, they're all wearing robes. <laughs> we're back to the, the easy sci-fi costume, put yeah. on robes. Um yeah, I, I thought that even with that shortcoming, because you could have done this thing very differently now, but uh, what, what's the point in comparing that to what could be done now? Um, I, I think the story is pretty solid. And even if they didn't necessarily dive deep on the things that I thought were interesting about it, um, it still plays out in a pretty entertaining way. We get to see Data be creative, and we get to see Picard, well, certainly at the end with the Sheliak, have some fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you, I really loved that scene between Deanna and Picard in his, um, in his ready room. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot about this that really makes it uh, kind of like we said last week of evolution, it just makes it a solid piece of Star Trek. It doesn't mean it's great. It doesn't mean it's mind blowing, but it's just kind of solid. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I am with it. How about you? I'm on the fence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the messages. I like the I like the ideas that are presented. Um, usually, I'm the guy who can ignore plot holes pretty well. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they didn't just, I mean, they could have brought down a 16 millimeter projector and shown them what the Shelyak could do. <laughs> and, and the problem is, if, if we are taking so long to get to the solution, because we got to fill 48 minutes, then I got a problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I like, I, I like the examination of command in this episode, or the examination of leadership mm-hmm. in this episode. I don't know that we actually hit on a real, like, here's how it's done thing. I mean, yeah, go ahead and lead and people will follow, but that's not always a good thing necessarily. So, I mean, that part's a little bit a little bit confusing. But um, eh, production-wise, I, I was both turned on and turned off by the Shelyak. On the one hand, they really do look kind of comical. On the other hand, since you can't really get a clear read on what they're like, they are kind of mysterious and maybe a little bit scary. Yeah, um, I, I, thought, I thought they were ex-Galbians with new suits. Their ship was awesome. Yeah. I thought their ship was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, again, I was I, I was struck by 
even though you're saying that the director of photography was not completely on this episode, mm-hmm. I was struck by it's got a different feel. I mean, yeah. it really does have a different feel from what we've seen for the last two seasons. Um, and yet, I mean, it's a little plodding, you know? We should have gotten there much sooner than we did, except, again, we have to fill 48 minutes. Um, sure. Picard is the best part of this episode. Oh, yeah. The time with uh, the time with Troy and then you know, when he's also standing there. There was another time, too. I can't remember. Maybe it was in that same discussion with Troy. But Patrick Stewart gets this look on his face like, uh, I don't want to be captain anymore. I want to go play. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's some like there's something on his face. He's like, ah, this just this 500,000 words. Really? This is what being captain of a starship is. Yeah. Um, there's some great moments with him. Um, There's another funny bit when uh, he walks into the transporter room and the guys just aren't coming up with a solution. <laughs> right. How's it going? About the same? Splendid. It just Good. walks right out. It's, it's, About like you'd expect, Captain. Yeah. Yeah. I, not I, worth mentioning in the recap, but it's just it's a nice <laughs> little bit. Yeah. It was a great it was a great moment. Yeah, yeah. That was a great moment. So um I mean the messages hold up. That's the thing. If you don't mind me jumping to that part. No, please do. The messages hold up to such a point that I kinda want to go ahead and give the episode a pass. Yeah. Even though the episode just, I mean, it's not, it's not compelling to me necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, As you reap, so shall you sow. Uh, The Shellyak have been, you know, letter of the law all the way through. It's what they thought would serve their purpose, as you pointed out earlier. And then Picard tries, you know, he tries to reason with them. He tries to beg. And finally, he finds a letter in the law that he can twist his way. And, you know, the Shellyak end up sort of being embarrassed. Now, still, Picard gets exactly what he wanted, but they could have gone ahead and agreed to it. They didn't have to be jerks about it. Yeah. The other thing is, of course, we'll probably never see the Shellyak again, so they can be jerks about it. If it costs them three weeks, well, this will be one embarrassing story that that Shellyak director will probably never tell again to anybody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, of course, the other big thing is to be at least you know cognizant of cultural differences, um, like we talked about. And it's weird because, seriously, that conversation between Troy and, and, and Picard is maybe two minutes that's where he gets the look on his face. That's that's the that's the that's the scene where he gets the look on his face. Cup, glass, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. pass. I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> like you sure it's not brown liquid. It could be anything, right? Yeah, that's when he gets that look. I mean, it's it, it, this this episode has great moments, and I'm not saying it it doesn't hold up for me, but um, being on the fence, I would say sort of the examination of command, and then those messages kind of tip it over for me. What about you, yeah. as far as uh, messages and such? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought to me it wasn't so much about messages as it was about examination, mm. you know, and, and that's why I thought, um, you know, even if you say that this episode is about how to argue with emotion when logic fails, <laughs> because Data has this breakthrough uh, and decides, okay, I'm, I'm going to wow them with a trick to get them on my side. Um, a, it's not really about that, but B, um, I was so interested in research about how that kind of argumentation fails just as well as logical argumentation fails. It takes a long time to change people's opinions. It takes a long, you know, uh, an even longer time to change people's beliefs, particularly if they're tied to their identity. Um, So to me, this is sort of a kicking off point to see uh, a little deeper examination about how how those things come together, about how people shape their worldviews, shape their beliefs, and then maybe or maybe not can be persuaded out of them. Um, I'm kind of a fan of barbecuing sacred cows. You know, not all of them, but the ones that need barbecue when they get in the way of what's good for humanity. This episode doesn't have a gentle, guided talk by Picard about respect and starting anew. That's what would have happened if Data had a communication line open between Picard and Goshevin. Mm-hmm. But instead, this episode had a phaser and an explosion to shake people out of their complacency. Um, and it worked. And, and lucky for Data that it worked. But here's the thing. You could almost say that if this episode were uh, an examination of rule by fear, mm-hmm. well, both Goshevin and Data are doing it wrong. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, no, there's, I mean, there's it, it, one other weakness of this show, and forgive me because it sounds like all I'm doing is bagging on this show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're sheeple. Yeah. I mean, and Goshevin is standing there saying, look, we've been here forever. Everything's going to be fine. Everybody's like, yeah, you're right, Goshevin. And then Data's like, no, no, you're all going to die. And then the people yeah. are like, oh, oh, you're right, Data. I guess we should go with you then. And then Goshevin turns Data off and they're like, oh, 
Well, look how much stronger Goshevin is. Yes, Goshevin, of course. I mean, they are, they're, like, they're like the worst non-player characters in any video game you've ever come across. <laughs> like whoever I, they're standing I, closest to, that's who they follow. I wonder if you could almost write this a little bit differently now where you, you've got data showing up. You know, For whatever reason, it's only him who, who can go there. And maybe later you can get a Picard or a Riker or somebody there. But even in the face of evidence, even if he brings pictures of the Sheliak and he brings, like you said, the 16-millimeter projector of here's the Sheliak blowing up planets, here's all this stuff – then they still get hit with the response of, yeah, hey, I, I've never met a Sheliak. I've never heard of him. It's not a problem I need to deal with. Because maybe that's the part of it that interests me as a parallel to today, that you can throw out any number of topics and say, hey, look, th- this is a real and imminent danger that we have to be aware of. Eh, well, you know, I'm not aware of it in my backyard. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to worry about it. Well, okay. I mean, if you're rewriting the episode, though, then actually what I would like to see is some people stay with Goshevin. Honestly, mm-hmm. I'd like to see yeah, some people yeah. just, like, stay there and, and, and have Picard then have to deal with the fact that, yeah, they made their choice and there's really nothing I can do. I think that would actually be a harder thing for Data because it just logically just would not work for him. But that's if you're rewriting the episode, which it seems kind of yeah. silly to do 20-some-odd years later. Right, yeah. Yeah, we we don't have those jobs yet. (laughs) (laughs) My name's not Orsi. You? (laughs) All right, John. I'm thinking it's probably about time to wrap this puppy up. Do you want to? Do you want to do that for us this week? Glad to do it, Ken. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at Roddenberry.com, where you'll also find a lot of interesting information about original productions and graphic novels from Roddenberry Entertainment. You can find more exciting Star Trek podcasts at Trek.fm. That's Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. Next week... The Survivors. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Pursuant to Clause 3, Subsection 2, Paragraph 327. I am out of here. And transmission.